You're listening to At Any Rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends and themes in fixed income, currency, and commodity markets today. I'm Alex Rover, your host for this conversation. And joining me today are Michael Froley, the head of our U.S. economics team, and Jay Barry, who's the head of our U.S. government security strategy. Uh, we're recording this on July 29th. So these guys are the two perfect speakers for today's podcast, where we'll discuss the July FOMC meeting and consider both what the FOMC intended to convey and how the markets reacted. We'll also dig into Thursday's release of the GDP for 2Q22. And in addition to that, we'll also discuss what we're watching for from the U.S. Treasury next week at the refunding announcement. That's a lot to cover, but uh, we note that the research notes uh, serving as the basis of today's discussion are available to institutional fixed income clients of J.P. Morgan's on J.P. Morgan markets. The specific notes are the Treasury market daily from Monday, July 25th, and also from Wednesday, July 27th as well as uh, Mike's economics note uh, from July uh, 27th, uh, Powell gets nicer and neutral. Having said all that, let's turn now to Mike Faroli. So Mike, July has been a real minefield for Fed watchers with inflation and growth related data surprising both in un unpleasant ways. What do you make of the committee um, committee's messaging this week, how it dealt with, uh, with inflation and growth in the statement, and how do you think Chair Powell addressed these issues in the presser? Yeah, so the most notable change in the statement was to highlight the uh, slowdown in economic activity. Um, there was a slight modification to note that food prices were also a contributor to higher inflation, but it does uh, it does seem like the, the, the stronger emphasis was on the disappointing uh, growth, uh, which was also, I think, highlighted by, by, by uh, Chair Powell in the presser at a number of times he mentioned uh, the disappointing activity numbers. And, you know, I thought it was interesting. He also, he also mentioned that, you know, the labor market uh, seems to be kind of coming into better balance. So I think that was probably one of the reasons why the market took away from it uh, kind of a dovish, uh, a little bit of a dovish tone. Uh, certainly it was hawkish overall. I mean, obviously they had 75 basis points, but relative to expectations, I think there was perhaps a little more emphasis on the, um, on the growth disappointments, uh, even though it was obviously a meeting that was clearly still very much focused on uh, inflation. It definitely seems like the market's bias is to lean into the disappointing side of the growth and inflation news. And, and maybe that shouldn't be surprising. We're bond people after all, so that, that's sort of the, the history. But when you look at the underlying drivers of, of growth and inflation in your forecast, how do you see them evolving versus sort of how the market's reacting to them? Growth will be disappointing, uh, or at least soft in the second half of the, the year. Obviously, we had the uh, negative GDP number yesterday, but a number of indicators suggest that momentum remains pretty soggy going into uh, into the third quarter. Perhaps we get some support from a lower level of inventory stock building in the second quarter. So we do think we can still manage to eke out positive growth in the second half. I think another important support to growth in the second half uh, will be what should be a decline in headline inflation or softer headline inflation uh, as we've seen energy prices uh, move down. So that should help the consumer. So we do think we managed to eke out positive growth, but it's not going to be um, impressive growth by any means, I don't think. Uh, and in terms of inflation, I think the most uh, important development, as I mentioned, is that 
if the futures markets are correct, headline inflation, energy future markets, I should say, uh, are correct. Headline inflation should be softer in the second half, even as we have kind of stubbornly persistent uh, core inflation, particularly in some of the shelter components. So as we look look forward, the next Fed meetings, you know, nearly two months out at this point, it's a pretty long, pretty long period. We get we get some data along the way. Uh, more imminently, we're going to run into Fed speak, which I think is is you know starting almost immediately, and and you know be interesting to sort of see what what we get out of this. Um, and then I guess somewhere in the middle of all this, maybe we've got Jackson Hole, uh, although mm -hmm. we haven't really sort of heard heard anything about that yet. What what are the friction points you're sort of you know be watching out for between you know the different the different commentary coming out of different different Fed people and how do you think that it you know ultimately shapes you know potentially what the view might be in September? Mm -hmm. So for September, Powell said uh, on Wednesday, seventy five is a possibility depending on the data, um, and we think the data that really matters is going to be we get two payroll reports between now and September, uh, and we get two September meeting and we get two CPI reports. Uh, for both of those, we think the path is more likely to, to bias them toward 50. Um, on the CPI, uh, kind of jumping off my earlier comment, it does look like um, July and, and August CPI, we think probably averaged something like 0.15 on the headline, roughly, um, which would be a notable improvement, uh, even if, the, as I said earlier, the core remains a bit you know, stubbornly strong. And then on um, on payroll starting uh, next Friday, uh, we expect a, a step down, a notable step down from the pace that we've seen over the past few months um, in line with what we've seen going on uh, in jobless claims. So we do think that both, both of those data points, uh, payrolls and CPI should pave the way for uh, 50 uh, rather than 75 uh, at the next meeting. And as far as Jackson Hole, as, we'll see. As you said, you know, we, we really don't know yet. So it's kind of too soon to say what, what to expect out of that. I guess finally, you know, some parts of the bond market, and I'm thinking mainly about sort of the mortgage-backed security sector, uh, remain very focused on the balance sheet story, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what the potential is for, you know, asset sales or potentially an early stop to the, to, to the runoff. Um, although that, that I think affects the markets more broadly. Anything this week that you learned that, that, that you know, reinforced or changed your view about the, the likely path there? No, uh, to the contrary, I think Powell was, um, when asked about it, just indicated it's essentially on autopilot and that they're not going to revisit it for, uh, revisit the, the current plans for some time. And he, in fact, said that you know, the likely course is that this will continue on the current autopilot path, I guess you'd say, uh, for another two and two to two and a half years. So I wouldn't expect the issue to get taken up by the committee again anytime in this calendar year. It seems like their focus right now is on uh, calibrating the right path for the funds rate. That that uh, balance sheet is really in the background. So I don't so maybe that's just a polite way of saying, you know, stop asking about it, I guess. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thanks a lot, Mike. Yep. So having said that, let's turn now to Jay Barry and talk a little bit about how uh, the bond markets reacted to this week's news. 
And Jay, I want to separate the bond market's reaction to the FOMC meeting and, and the presser from its GDP reaction. Uh, you know, what do you make of how Treasury and TIPS markets reacted to each this week? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Alex. And I think first, with respect to the Fed meeting, just to build off what Mike has already said, it seems the market is taking this as sort of the first derivative signal that the Fed's pivot may be coming. Um, and, and the market certainly embraced, I think, recognizing now that the funds rate is at neutral, that going forward, there is certainly a, a higher likelihood that the pace of um, tightening is going to, to slow right down. So I think if we look at where we were just a week ago prior to the Fed meeting, the markets were implying, you know, perhaps something more like 60 basis points of tightening or a little bit more than that for the September meeting. And that's come down into kind of the mid to 50 high basis points. And the same thing we can see in the November meeting as well, where it got, went, went from sort of a 50-50 probability of 25 versus 50 to more firmly pricing 25 basis points. So I think the market certainly leaning on what the Fed chair said that um, these supersized hikes are perhaps we're probably getting past them. Um, and that against the backdrop of you know, his commentary in which he sort of recognized that growth is slowing, that this might ultimately end up at a lower terminal rate as well. Because the market um, as recently as, as, as a week ago was pricing a terminal Fed funds rate much later this year, or around 350, 355. And, with the way we've moved over the last week or so, now we're pricing in a terminal funds rate that's closer to three and a quarter. So I think the, the reaction to the Fed meeting was definitely a, a dovish reaction um, in, in the context of what Mike has said. And then that sort of followed through with the GDP data yesterday as well, where the yield curve steepened in a bullish fashion further. And I think it's pretty notable that you had a very similar reaction we had on Wednesday afternoon where front end yields declined the yield curve steepened, market-based inflation expectations increased. So it's all indicating that perhaps the Fed, which had sort of gained very strong credibility from the middle of June through to the last week on its inflation-fighting credibility with the way the yield curve flattened and inverted, the way market-based inflation expectations came down, that the market's pivoting a bit and saying, okay, this is credible, but perhaps the focus is pinning more towards growth right now. And it seems like a rather classic reaction in that regard. Looking ahead, you know, the markets are still pretty focused on, on you know, the data flow and I guess the next Fed meeting. Um, but Treasury markets in particular, you know, don't really get much of a breather. You know, the August Treasury refunding process starts, you know, next week. And that's actually, a, I think, a pretty big development for Treasuries right now, given, given some of the activity we've had in the market recently. Um, what are you focused on with respect to refunding? And what, what did you make of the questions they asked of dealers this time? Yeah, I think there's three things that I'm looking out for at the refunding announcement next Wednesday. Um, the first will be, does the Treasury make a decision to make another round of cuts across the coupon curve as it did in November and February and May? I think the information we gleaned from the tea leaves from <clears throat> the last refunding announcement in May and the tea back minutes was that the Treasury was surprised by the strength of tax receipts it had seen so far this year and would sort of wait and see before it made a decision about another round of cuts. Well, in the interim, even though we're sitting here talking about recession risk, it's notable that the fiscal position has actually improved further. And um, we've revised our budget deficit forecast for fiscal year 22, um, down from a bit over a trillion um, back where it was in May to about 800 billion right now, which would be the smallest federal budget deficit in about five fiscal years. 
So that on a standalone basis would run the risk that the treasury makes another round of cuts across the curve right here. Um, so I think I'm watchful for that. But the balance is, is that even though we expect the fiscal position to be materially improved this year, the outlook doesn't look nearly as bright for fiscal 23. One, Mike's talked about what we expect to be about subtrend growth for next year and a labor market that loosens a little bit. That sort of lends itself towards probably slightly wider deficits and weaker tax receipts. And more importantly, I think we look at the strength of tax receipts this year. It's likely that a large part of that was being driven by capital gains tax receipts after strong asset performance in both 2020 and 21. And just the opposites happened this year. Broad equity indices down, double digits. The bond market down, mid to high single digits. It's all making the case that there won't be the same strength of capital gains tax receipts. And in fact, maybe investors will or and, and individuals will be deferring uh, or using losses to defer tax payments. So we're kind of at a pivot for the deficit. Um, and it means that combined with the fact that the Fed is letting its balance sheet normalize on an ongoing basis, and we're ramping that up, that Treasury's financing needs from non-Fed hands from the public will actually be increasing. So does it make sense to make a cut at the same time that the fiscal picture is turning? And we lean very much um, on the side of saying that against this backdrop, Treasury doesn't need to make a targeted, uh, a, a wholesale round of cuts. It can choose to be more deliberate. And that's kind of the second piece of the puzzle, what I'm looking for. It can be more deliberate and make cuts in the sectors where it leaned on most heavily the last couple of years with increases in issuance. First, the introduction of the 20-year bond um, and sizing it in a way which is I think, a bit larger than most people had expected. And second, heavily leaning on the seven-year sector. So you know, I think recognizing that the fiscal picture has improved, but not enough where it's necessarily to make cuts across the curve that Treasury can make cuts in places where the sizing still sticks out as somewhat larger than it was prior to COVID, and where, to an extent, um, this high macro uncertainty driven by the uncertainty over Fed policy, how it's contributed to inordinately high delivered volatility, um, and sort of impacted these less liquid sectors, it makes sense for the sort of Treasury to focus on that. So in our minds, we're looking for, for another round of cuts in just sevens and 20s, a billion dollars per month in sevens, $2 billion per month in 20s. That would gain the Treasury Department some borrowing capacity to the short end of the curve. And that's the third piece of the puzzle of what I'm looking for is that when we marry all this together, we know federal budget deficits improving and coupon cuts have all you know reduced Treasury's financing um, capacity. But the big issue in the background is that the T-bill market over the last year has borne the brunt of this. And the T-bill debt has fallen to about 15% right now, which is the low end of the optimal range that the Treasury has identified. So if the Treasury Department makes these targeted cuts, that should all else equal free up more capacity to borrow in bills. And that should be bolstered, we think, seasonally by the turn in bill issuance, which tends to occur in the fall after the September corporate tax date. So it's very possible that if the Treasury makes these targeted cuts and then moves ahead and allows this to be funded via bills as funding needs increase against the backdrop of a wider deficit and, and QT next year in the bill market, then the bill share will rise back into sort of the middle of the range that the Treasury would hope for. And while there's very there's not the same dislocations at the short end of the curve that existed just a few weeks ago when Treasury bills were trading quite rich relative to OIS or to soccer. You know, I think this is a, a recognition that there is very strong underlying and ongoing demand for T-bills and that the Treasury Department will need to address it. So those, those are the three things I'm looking for. Um, does Treasury make cuts across the curve? We think not. 
it probably targets the sectors where it's leaned on most heavily and where liquidity issues persist. And then third, by doing all this, it'll pivot more issuance back to the bill market over time. Yeah, it definitely sounds, you know, definitely feels like there's a, a lot of demand in the bill market for, you know, for more supply, particularly, you know, in, in, in probably shorter bills. But, um, and, and we see that I think reflected in the balance sheet in terms of the ongoing demand for the, for the overnight RRP. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's telling you right there, there's, there's pretty good demand. Um, but moving on from that, just one last thing, I guess, beyond the refunding is, you know, we're, we're you, you referenced that we're sort of in a, in a place where we've had, you know, pretty, pretty crummy market depth and liquidity recently, and, and particularly in some different parts of the curve. But um, in general, August has, has a history of sort of, you know, seeing a drop off in, in market liquidity. Um, what, what are you expecting this time in terms of, in terms of market depth and how it evolves over August and, and what should, you know, market participants be focusing on? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting that you notice that there's a sequential decline in treasury market liquidity over the course of the summer that only worsens in August. And I think that makes sense anecdotally, right? We think about the evolution of a vacation period in the Northern hemisphere and August being the period where I think, you know, both from. I think the dealer side, as well as from the end user side, there are fewer participants around. It results in higher volatility and lower liquidity. So, you know, that would intuitively to me suggest that there is room for the liquidity backdrop to worsen as we roll ahead into August in just a couple of days time. And unfortunately, the starting point is already exceedingly weak, right? So market depth in treasuries is not where it was in its worst levels during the financial crisis or even in the spring of 2020. But when we look back over a longer period, it's kind of, it's very close to it. It's at pretty depressed levels. And a large part of this, I think, is related to the sensitivity to volatility and this whole uncertainty about Fed policy and the macro path that Mike has spoken about and that you've been asking about. So if it doesn't seem like that's going to alleviate over the near term, and we've got this seasonal backdrop where liquidity tends to worsen, I'd expect this to only sort of get worse as we move into August, even though we're already sitting at relatively low levels. And you know, to me, it means that you can probably exaggerate rate moves even further, and we've been exaggerating them. So it's identifiable for us that the move in rates this past couple of weeks, it makes sense against the backdrop of weaker growth expectations in the Fed, which looks not as hawkish as the market was previously expecting it to be. Long-term yields have declined significantly more than we would have expected, given how the market's growth and inflation and Fed policy expectations have evolved over the last few weeks. And you know, perhaps this is indicative of a market in which liquidity is relatively low. And it was a reason for investors to, to sort of reduce um, their, their risk and get closer to home ahead of what typically ends up being one of the weaker periods for, for liquidity seasonally um, during the course of the year. Um, and I think on a go forward basis, it just means that the, um, the weakness in liquidity is likely to persist and likely to keep moves relatively exaggerated. So that sounds like it makes for a long, hot August for bond markets. Anyway, Jay, thanks for your views. And I think that's a good place to stop for today. Stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2022, JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on July 29th, 2022.